Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing common sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is the status of abortion rights in Michigan. Now, what's interesting about Michigan is that although abortion is still legal in Michigan and other states have gotten attention with total bans and fetal personhood bills, the status of abortion rights in Michigan may not be as certain as we think. My guest today is Senator Adam Hollier, and he is here to explain what's happening in Michigan and what can be done to ensure the right to choose in Michigan. I will start by letting him introduce himself further. Cool. My name is Adam Ollier. I'm a state senator here in Detroit. Uh, I represent the second Senate district, and I'm really glad to be here. I'm a lifelong Detroiter, and I'm especially grateful to be able to join you because uh, my wife follows you on Twitter and thinks that you're absolutely amazing. Uh, but as we talk about this space, I think it's really important for men to step up and to be a part of this discussion and a part of protecting women's rights and particularly uh, agency over your body and access to healthcare. It's something that particularly Black men, I think, are not as prominent and prevalent in this space as we ought to. And as someone who represents a, a number of Black women and lives with one and is raising one to be, she's four. So I don't know if I'm really, I don't want to age her too quickly because I want her to stay a little princess for as long as I possibly can. But this is an issue that's really important to me, you know, both uh, as we think about this space from a practical standpoint, it's a really important issue for men to take the lead on because, men are the problem in this space. And if we aren't a bigger part of the solution, it's not going to happen. And as a black man, when we talk about the level of agency with which we do or do not have, often we're like, oh, man, it's not, nothing worse than being you know, a black man in these spaces. But when things happen, we look around and ask people to stand with us. And it's always black women that are standing with us and leading the charge. So on this issue, I think it's important for uh, me and my role and in my space to be similar doing so. And so I'm excited about talking about where Michigan is and getting folks encouraged because we're in a really unique space, but a space that makes it abundantly clear how important it is for people to be involved in the political system. Because I think that can always be scary for folks because they're like, ah, there's this, that. But Michigan is in a unique space because the law, the land in Michigan on the books is a 1931 total abortion ban that's abhorrent and atrocious. Uh, luckily, the governor and the attorney general and Planned Parenthood have really uh, preemptively pushed back in the courts to show that that law should not be enforceable. But it's caused a lot of um, angst wouldn't be, you know, speaking enough. It, it's caused a lot of ambiguity about what is the law, what is in the law, because there is a law on the books and there are court orders that say one thing and everyone's trying to fight to change where that is leaning from a perspective. And we know that access to abortion care is not just do you legally have access? It's also do or is there a perception that you have access? Are people willing to provide the care? Are people concerned with what it means to have access and to give care, particularly as we talk about doctors being willing to do so? And so that is it, and hospital systems being willing to do so. So we, we find ourselves in a unique moment right now. Well, I think it helps to back up a little bit and just be very clear. Is abortion legal in Michigan as we record today on August 10th? Absolutely. It's legal in Michigan today. There are a number of providers that are doing so. And Michigan, uh, for a variety of reasons, continues to be a state that some of our nearby 
Midwest neighbors are moving, you know, folks too, and people are coming from other states to Michigan to continue to get um, abortion care, access to abortion care uh, here in Michigan. So it is a hundred percent legal today, uh, and we have every expectation that it will continue to be so going forward because we're working hard to maintain people's rights. All right. So, you know, you mentioned there's a 1931 bill that is on the books. Mm -hmm. What has happened in the courts to ensure that that bill is not taking effect yet? Ooh, of, of course, the law professor asked the legislator what the courts are saying. <laughs> I, I'm going to remember that. Uh, but so the governor and Planned Parenthood uh, separately before Roe v. Wade was overturned, uh, I think right around the time that the draft opinion uh, was leaked, e even a little bit before that, as people kind of knew that this thing was coming, had sued for an injunction to say that it was unconstitutional based on state law protections. Uh, a appellate court held uh, or stayed the 1931 law, and so it was stayed. Then uh, Republican members of the legislature and some other groups uh, tried to seek redress on that. And what they had for like a day and a half ruled that um, that that law was not binding on local prosecutors. Now, an appeals court has then, I think within 24, 48 hours, said that, you know, stayed that opinion. So again, in this moment today, abortion is legal. Uh, doctors and providers who provide abortion care or services are still 100% protected and operating within the law here in Michigan. Uh, but there are court cases that could change that at any moment, um, especially noting that the law on the books is the 1931 law. What's also interesting is here in Michigan, we have the ability for a citizen's ballot initiative. And so I think it's only a handful of states where citizens can get a certain number of signatures and put something on the general election ballot for, you know, to make a law. Right. So, you know, not schoolhouse rock style where, you know, legislator introduced the bill, goes through both chambers signed by the executive. This is people go out and they get thousands of signatures, I think, in, for the reproductive justice, uh, reproductive rights initiative. I think they got 750,000 signatures in less than 90 days. And so, I mean, you know, you talk about at every entity, right? I have a big community event. We have people gathering petitions. We're out knocking doors. People are gathering petitions. And so they turned them in. And so on the November ballot, Michiganders are going to get the opportunity to vote to ensure that there is a real protection uh, for these rights for people who could become pregnant uh, here in Michigan. And I know that it is important for people to talk about them as reproductive rights and, and all those kind of things. We should also always say access to an abortion because that's the thing that people really want to restrict. But an abortion is an important part of healthcare rights. So I'm wearing my this tea uh, builds black birthing centers because I want people to recognize that this is something that that's present, that's prescient for people who want to have children, but for whatever reason can't because they have some health issue that comes up during that process. Right? Like this is not the narrative that people who are pro-life want to tell. This is about people having access and agency and control and space to make the best decision for themselves and their families. And that's why this is so important, right? So as we talk about why or the shifting narrative from a, a legal standpoint, the 1931 law would say that some attorney and nothing against attorneys, uh, but some attorney and a flip chart would determine the kind of care that you get 
when you are in the hospital. And so I have two little kids. You guys don't know that, but I do. Uh, my daughter's four and a half. My son's one and a half. But when my wife was pregnant with our eldest, she had a placenta abruption. And I will spare you the gory details because she hates when I talk through those things. But there was a moment where I could have lost both of them, where I was sitting in a hospital room and I had to make in my mind what the, that decision was going to be. Uh, if Michigan's 1931 law went back into effect, that would not have been me making the decision about whether or not the, the doctor was going to save my wife or my daughter or both or, or either. It would have been a flip chart of what was the liability, where they were in that space, how much blood she had lost. And that is not the kind of space that we want to do, because particularly for Black women who we know pain is not recognized the same way that already have astronomical uh, differentials between um, not only infant mortality rates, but maternal mortality rates. And so having a moment where uh, the person you love the most in the world's care is not dependent on the doctor that you spent time choosing, but an attorney interpreting a law that's 91 years old is really problematic in this state. And so I'm really grateful that that law is not in effect today and that Michiganders are going to have the opportunity to vote to ensure that it never goes back into effect. Because we know that, you know, three and four people believe that access to abortion is an important part of healthcare and that that decision should be made between uh, people and their spouse, their partner, their doctor, and their God if they've got one. You know, I'd love to get into detail about this lawyer with a flip chart situation. Cause you know, one ad that's going around um, it's like moms against Greg Abbott um, shows, you know, a woman getting and her and her husband getting very bad news. You know, the child's not going to farm and, you know, they ask the doctor what can do what you can do. And, you know, he points to the phone and says, I have to call Greg and it's a picture of Greg Abbott. Um, and that's the way it would operate now, you know, for the judges in Michigan who are saying, or who have said that, you know, prosecutors can enforce the 1931 law as we wait, you know, what is it that they are are permitting? What is it that they are saying can happen? And, you know, how does that change throughout the state of Michigan? Is it possible that, you know, if you live in Wayne County, which is progressive, the prosecutor's not going to enforce, but if you live in a more rural county or a more conservative county, the prosecutor will enforce. And, and like, how is that impacting the way doctors are, are practicing medicine in your state? Yeah. So again, that order was stayed again. So it was only the case for about 24, 48 hours. But in the first 24 hours after Roe was overturned, the largest hospital system in the state said that they were going to stop providing abortion care. Now, they quickly walked that back. Uh, but those are the kind of things, right? Like the largest hospital system in the state is headquartered in Western Michigan, which for folks who are not from here is DeVos country, right? And it was a situation where the largest hospital system in the state was saying, oh, you know, we're no longer going to provide abortion care. And, they, and that's a letter from the CEO going out. And this is an organization that's doing, as they would say, less than 100 or, or a few hundred um, abortions in total that were all medically necessary. This is not a, you know, I don't know that anyone is getting elective abortion, right? Like there's no abortion on demand thing, but abortions that are provided in a hospital setting are the most necessary, are the most critical to life safety. And the largest hospital system in the state was like, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore mm -hmm. um, because of the law. And it's like, well, what if I need that? What if that difference between life or death you've already determined as a hospital entity 
that you are not going to provide the care that is necessary. Because even under the 1931 law, it says that an abortion can be performed for the uh, life-saving of the mother. And we know that those situations exist where mothers are, are losing too much blood, that it's too early in the pregnancy, that you know, for a variety of reasons that that determination has got to be made. Because the other big piece that I think people have got to reconcile with is there are moments and conditions where uh, someone on the back end might say that you could, you had an abortion when the priority was just to save the life of the mother. And those are the kind of things that we've got to, to grapple with because a 1931 law had no consciousness, no understanding about what science looks like today and its space. And so it's a really dangerous space to be able to say, well, hey, an attorney is going to say where the line is on mother. How much does she have to have bled out? How, you know, what position does she have to be in? What case does she have to have? And, and those are the kind of things that you don't want. And so I think it's really important for folks to reconcile with this idea that people who say that they are pro-life are not talking about protecting someone's life, right? Like my wife is alive. My daughter is alive. My son is alive. Uh, when they did not yet exist, they did not yet exist, right? So when we talk about these moments, the state does not uh, recognize them as people until they're born, right? And so if the definition of what a person is is going to change, then that has huge ramifications across the board. And some of them, I think, will be better for women, but they will not be the kind of things that uh, these pro-life people want, right? So if you, for example, uh, and I know you don't have children and will not assume that you are pregnant, but let's say you were uh, in, in that situation um, and you were pregnant right now, right? And the state said you have to have this child. Well, if you and I got pregnant and I was the father, then I have to start paying child support when you're born, not when you are carrying a baby. Well, maybe child support has to start as you're carrying a child. And if the state says that you'd have to do it and you didn't want to do it and I didn't want to do it, maybe the state is on the hook for what child care costs for every prenatal visit for your food. You know, are you able to get food benefits as though you are carrying too, right? You're eating for, right? Like every person in the world, every family is like, well, me, honey, you eating for two now. Well, is the state... <laughs> Is the state doubling your, your food stamps, right? Are we giving you eligibility for those things? Are you getting WIC from that jump? You know, are is your income counting as carrying two for the sake of all benefits, right? So we got a lot of things that we're going to have to adjust uh, if the argument and the narrative is, Carlos, you are not one, but two, mm -hmm. right? Because people are not going to say you one and a half, right? Like, if you're if if the narrative is something different than what it is today, then the whole narrative has got to change. Right. And, and those are the things that people who um, don't believe in access to an abortion, don't believe in this care, uh, are unwilling and unable to grapple with that. I that I have started to think about. I know that's how we became uh, close because I was like, hey, you're an expert and a professional and you know about these things. Uh, if I was trying to make this legal argument and understand what this discussion looks like, how do I justify that? Well, and, and, and that's a great transition to our next conversation, which even though it's legally technical, um, it's actually your idea. Um, and I thought it was a great idea uh, when you, you came up with it, which is we or, you know, people who have chosen to ban abortion, not us. Um, people have not thought about changes that have been made to state constitutions since the 1931 bill. Some states have bills from the 1800s on the books. 
Um, and those states have had intervening privacy measures um, in their state constitutions since their abortion bans were then overturned by Roe. But then it seems no one has run a fiscal note, right? No one has figured out how much this is going to cost. Um, and one reason um, that I became well known is because I sent out a fetal personhood tweet. Um, but that fetal personhood tweet was me thinking about fetuses in the way that I think about corporations. And when I think about corporations, I think about how much things cost, and I naturally think about the economics. Um, and so your idea was, or is, um, one, you know, states have to compensate for takings um, mm -hmm. under the, the 14th Amendment. Um, we've got 13th Amendment about forced servitude. Like, you know, if you are forcing me to carry a child, is that forced servitude? And then states like Michigan, and actually most states, have allowances for foster care, have allowances um, for food and for wit and all these other things we're talking about, how does all of that change? And how does the financial responsibility of the state change when you then mandate, um, that someone carries a child? So I would love for you to talk about one, how, what made you think of this proposal yeah. when you came up with it? Um, and just tell everyone what your, you know, I, your thoughts and ideas are. Yeah, so I, I think for me, it, it's a pretty simple thing, right? Like, if I'm telling you that you have to do something, I have to own that, right? And so I, for, for all of you who don't know, I'm, I have a master's in urban planning. And one of the first things that we talk about is the idea of a takings. And so a takings really came out of um, a legal case, Pennsylvania call, where a guy sells his property uh, the mineral, the mineral rights, so the mining rights to a, a coal company, and doesn't want them to mine on them, and because there's a new state law that says you can't mine under a dwelling, and it's like, all right, cool. So he sold the the mining rights, and the mine's like, well, we can't use them because we can't, and so they were like, well, then the state has to pay the mining company for what they could have uh, gotten in value because they have effectively uh, legislated away all the choice, and I was like. That sounds like exactly what they're doing to you. Mm. The reason that that's so important is because uh, I do a lot of work uh, with one of my colleagues, Erica Geis, talking about the gender pay gap. And the gender pay gap, a number of researchers have started to talk about how it's not just a gender thing, but a children thing, right? Like having a child or even the potential to have a child is one of the biggest challenges that women face because as a man, when... I am married and about to have a child or, 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 you know, my wife's pregnant. They're like, oh, he's more responsible. He's going to be more stable. But a woman is like, oh, she's probably not going to keep work. And it's like the craziest idea. So they're like, hey, man, you have done absolutely nothing uh, to get pregnant, but you're about to have a child. We're going to pay you more. And hey, woman, you have done all the things that say you are going to be much more responsible. But instead, we're going to pay you less because now you're probably going to focus on that child. Like it, it, it's mind boggling. But that is a thing that we are now forcing on to people who could become pregnant. And so if the state is saying we are going to take away your choice, we're going to take away your agency, that's going to have to come with a cost because we know that having a child has a huge financial cost, particularly for women, uh, particularly at uh, the beginning and mid portion of their career. That is a lifelong space. Right. So if I told you, hey, Carlos, you can't work for insert however many times, you know, many days whether that be the recommended four months that people are like, hey, you know, it'd be great if you could spend that time with your child bonding, developing, you know, nursing, doing all those kind of things, right? It's like, okay, well, you're going to lose four months of work 
I not there are not very many people who can afford to do four minutes, four months off from work. And when we talk about what maternity care is or paternity leave and maternity leave, very few people have more than four or six weeks if they have anything. And a lot of people have to take temporary disability of which they do not get paid. So you're talking about saying, all right, well, we know that just having a child is going to take away uh, money out of your pocket. We're also going to put you not working and give you a new expense. It just doesn't make sense. So if the state is saying you have to do that, the state's got to pay you for that. It's got to pay you for every day that you miss from work because you now have to go to these uh, you know, these visits with the doctors, like there are a lot of them. If you've never had a child, there are a lot of prenatal visits that you were supposed to go to. Right. And so it's like, all right, so we're going to give you uh payment for the prenatal visits. We're going to pay you for the vitamins that you need to take. We're going to give you time away because you know what? Having a baby is actually very difficult. It causes huge changes in your body. And some of those may limit your ability to do various professions, right? And it's not that it says that you can't do anything, but if you are a professional athlete, for example, uh, having a child can have huge implications on your thing. If you are out doing certain things that like, there are lots of ways that the state is responsible and limiting your decisions and your choices in that space. And so we have to compensate you for them, whether that be with unemployment insurance, whether it be with underemployment payments, whether it be with the expansion of housing programs and health programs, because if we are now saying that you have to have this child. Well, all right. Well, your income level changes on all the different programs that we have as soon as you have a second person, right? So if your household goes from one to two, uh, you may have to make less to be eligible for programs, but you aren't eligible until you have that child. But we have made the decision before you've had that child. And so you should now be eligible for the additional child care, for the additional housing allotments, for all of those things. And so I think that that's going to come to a huge bill on the state uh, that I'm very happy to pay for. I think we should have been doing it already because we have been free riding and, and loafing in, in this space. But it's a requirement from my estimation, before the state can tell you what you have to do and not pay for it, right? It's, it's the very same justification that we have for child support or a whole host of other things that we're doing. And as we talk about the foundation for foster care, foster care is wildly expensive and has very poor results, right? And so it's kind of the same thing. If I told you, you have to have a child that you don't want to have, I should have to pay you like a foster mom, even you keeping your child. And those are the kind of things that people will, will blanch at, but it's the same thing as me saying, Hey, Carlos, you have to have a child. You, you have to do that. You, you have to take the life changing thing that is going to do that because I don't have to do that. Right. Like I'm not missing a workout because I'm having a child, right? Like I'm, I'm not right. I'm, right. Like I don't have to take a day off to do those kind of things. I mean, we look at generations of men who were not present for the birth of their children because they were at work. You don't get to do that. Right. Well, what I think is interesting about the comparison to foster care, um, and I kind of dug into the system, um, the Michigan foster care system, you know, the idea of foster care and why we spend so much on foster care and I love how you talk about how it's not effective. Um, one of my colleagues has written a lot um, about the prison pipeline for women as well as the foster care pipeline for women's children and how we seem to prefer to take some people's children away at all costs instead of allowing them to stay in the home. But, you know, the thought of paying for foster care is they are doing a service to the state. Um, mm -hmm. And the biggest difference between foster care 
and abortion bans is that people are vetted before they're allowed to be foster parents and they are doing it 100% by choice. Um, when we talk about forcing, compelling people to have children with abortion bans, we're also eliminating the choice. And so in my thoughts, the calculation should be greater than foster care because foster care is I'm vetted. I chose this. I want to serve the state. I want to serve the community. But just as if you decide to put a railroad through my neighborhood and are compelling me to give you my land, if you force me to put a child in my body, you are compelling me to have that child and deal with it for the rest of its life. Um, so the, the, the calculations could be greater. So I, I would like, like for you to talk a little bit more about just how takings work in general. Um, Cause I think you and I use it as, you know, I'm a law professor and you're a legislator. So we use it, you know, just kind of casually, but I don't think people really understand, you know, what does it mean if the state decides to put a railroad through my neighborhood and has to take my house away? That's a perfect example. So uh, as to black people, the best example is highways. Highways devastated black communities, right? So they were like, hey, is that a thriving black community? You know what would look really good there? A highway that allows people who don't want to live in the city to drive out to the suburbs and lead investment out. Oh, oh, wait, that's actually a terrible idea. Right. But that was the thing that I think we're going to start to see with these abortion bans. Right. Like you're going to see these situations. They're like, well, they're designed to do X, Y, or Z. Well, what they really do is they disrupt our families. They disrupt our communities and they do them in a calculated fashion. And so what a takings did was it said, hey. You took our property, right? You you took the property and you're going to build a highway out of it. But the requirement is that there be just compensation. Now, here's the here's the real kicker. And this is especially important for black communities because they gave black families like a nickel and they gave non-black families, particularly white families, like ten dollars. And so they were like, hey, you know, your, your house isn't worth anything. It's in a bad neighborhood. It's like, I love my neighborhood. It's thriving. They're like, no, nah, no, nah, property ain't worth nothing. It's like, well, that's not that's not okay. But the taking said that if the government took your stuff, right? I have a glass of water. The government takes my glass of water. The government is supposed to replace that from a value standpoint. The problem that we saw with that is the inherent racism between how they value uh, black people and black people's stuff. And so, as we talk about this thing, I think it's critically important to start having this discussion before there's a valuation on black lives because. We know what they're going to say. They're going to say, oh, well, it's not that expensive. It's not going to be worth, you know, whatever. It's like, no, it costs a lot. And we need to be out front and talking about what it costs to raise a Black child. Because that's what the state is saying. They are taking away the responsibility of you. They are absolving you of the responsibility of having this child and caring for them. Because as the father of two little kids, kids are expensive because they like dresses and they like dinosaurs and they like wands and they like cool stuff. But most importantly, they like heat and food and shelter. And none of those things are cheap, not to mention daycare, right? So when we start talking about what does it cost to have a child? What does it cost in this space? Uh, the federal government or the state government, whoever is saying you no longer have a right to an abortion. And as a result, you are being compelled to have this child has got to kick in and pay for all of those kind of things in a very real and meaningful way. And so I've been starting to think through what that looks like, because the easy thing would be, oh, well, the state's just got to pay child support. Well, the state's got to do more than just pay child support, right? Like it, it's, 
it's an interesting concept. But imagine if the state did have to pay child support because child support is not about what does it cost to raise a child, which is why it's not a great example. Child support is about what is an appropriate proportion of what it is that the non-custodial parent makes. Because the non-custodial parent don't make any money, child support's real low. Mm -hmm. The state doesn't have any limit about what it makes. The question for the state is, what does it cost to effectively raise a child? And as it relates to the Black community, a, a Black child, whether that be a little Black boy, a little Black girl, a little Black something, right? Like, what does that cost? It costs child care. In Michigan, the median cost for child care in one year is $11,000 a year. Uh, if you start talking about what does it cost to feed a little person, thousands, right? Like, so, you know, just in food, right? So we're at food and daycare, and we're probably at $14,000, $15,000. You start adding diapers, 16. You start saying, well, what about heat and shelter? We're probably at 22, 23. And so what is what does it cost if you make minimum wage in the state of Michigan? Not a lot, but let's say you're making $15 an hour, you're still making about $30,000 a year. So pretty quickly, you realize that $15 an hour maybe covers the cost of having a child. And so when we talk about what does it mean to say that the state is requiring you to have a child or saying, oh, well, we're going to pay for that. Mm -hmm. That means we're on the hook for every single one of the, these spaces. So and that's before you start talking about the healthcare. Imagine if that child has special needs. So I know that there are a number of people who are like, well, you know, if that child has Down syndrome or some other thing, and they're like, well, you can't abort that fetus at three weeks, you know, six weeks or 12 weeks or, or whatever the case may be, because you recognize that there's going to be some serious developmental issue. Well, we don't fund that at the state level at an appropriate level, right? Like there is not some extra programming, some extra care for the lifelong care that's going to be necessary. And this is not about making people's decisions for them, except we are making people's decisions for them. And so if I am telling you, hey, Carlos, you are going to have to carry this thing, this life, this issue, this child, this person, this whatever, you know, however anyone wants to define what it is to become pregnant and then to carry a life into existence, then I got to be on the hook for it. And that is something that I think we have not accurately discussed, that we aren't talking about, that we are not building the appropriate narrative around, but we've got to, because the state can't say, hey, I'm going to take your decisions and not have to cover them, because we do, right? Like, imagine if I hit you with a baseball bat and you got hurt. I'm on the hook for the baseball bat, right? Like I'm on the hook for your care, for your pain and suffering, for your emotional well-being. We have very established understanding about what the liability is for doing something, whether it's on purpose or by accident, right? Mm -hmm. So the change, you know, that changes very differently if I hit you because we were at baseball practice and I, I lost my bat and swung out and hit you, or you walked too close, or you know, whatever, versus doing something maliciously. But either way. I'm on the hook for whatever that cost is. And when the state says, hey, Carlos, you have to have this child, state's on the hook for it. And we got to, as a state senator, I've got to be saying, hey, we're going to start to put the money away to cover that. Because, you know, if there are a thousand kids uh, in Michigan that are born now as a result of an abortion ban, that is a thousand kids that we have to put thirty or $40,000 away a year 
and say, well, okay, we're, we're going to cover those things. And then just like any parent, do we have a responsibility to send them to college? Do we have a responsibility to house them after they come back from whatever stupid thing that they decide to do? Because the beauty of having a child is you never not have a child, right? At 35, 36, 37, right? Like I'm still going, when something sounds funny in my car, I'm still calling my dad. He lives, I live two blocks from him. I'm still like, hey, dad, how does this sound, right? Like, should we fix this thing? What's going on? On the flip side, when my dad needs something heavy to move, he's like, hey, Adam, come move this heavy thing. Got it, dad. Right. It's a lifetime, it's a lifetime commitment. And how, how does a state justly compensate for a lifetime commitment? You know, it's important. We use the property example, um, but people aren't property anymore right? People aren't property anymore. And it is difficult to estimate what it would take from conception through, you know, God knows when it's not just 18, you know, the foster care system cuts off at 18 um, and you're no longer ward of the state and there's things to, to bridge the gap, but parenting doesn't end at 18. I'm the same. I call my, there are things, I have a list of things that my dad fixes when he comes to visit me. And that's like the daddy list of stuff that only he knows how to do that no one else is capable of doing. Um, And that'll happen until the day he dies, right? So, you know, parenting is forever. How does a state budget for forever? That's the thing. We have got to start to say that we're in for it because you know who have a really good track record at doing these things? Actuaries. They know what it costs. They know what it means. They know how to do it. And so if we were committed to doing this, we would hire actuaries and they would say, hey, man, this is what is, this is what your liability is. And as a state, we'd have to reconcile with, is that something we're willing to do? I'm a firm believer that it is not something that that this state or any other state is going to be willing to have. I mean, you compare the way uh, people who can become pregnant are treated in our country versus a number of other countries. And, you know, as a woman, you get very little protections for going away from work because you're you know, pregnant or whether or not you come back or the kind of support and services you have, which is why you see an increasing number of people who are waiting later in life to have children or opting out of having children at all. The value proposition does not make sense for too many people and too many families. And as a result, the state is going to have to be a much bigger player in this role if we're now inserting ourselves into that value proposition and saying, Hey, you've got to do it. I don't care what you say. You're going to have it. Now, let's, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the just compensation aspect of it. Um, we know what happened with redlining. We know what happened, or you and I know, but we have educated people on what happened with redlining and the development of highways, the development of railroads. Um, and we know that Black communities were not justly compensated. Um, you know, should we go down this path with abortion bans? Are there things that y'all can do in the legislature to ensure that compensation is fair and that that can ensure that compensation is just? There are absolutely things that we're going to do. And I think that, you know, in Michigan, we've gone through a pretty exhaustive understanding about uh, school funding. And so the challenge in Michigan has been that uh, we finally got to uh, equal funding. Right. So every school kid gets the same amount. 
But what we recognize in this year's budget is that there is a difference in cost to educating children where English is a second language, kids from uh, urban communities, kids from very rural communities, kids uh, that have special needs or, or learn differently, right? Like we've recognized that it costs more to educate children in schools that, you know, X percentage of children are eligible for free and reduced lunch. We know that it costs more to educate little black kids, particularly black boys, right? And so if the state is saying you got to have them, there's going to be a difference in what the state has got to invest in leveling the playing field on those kind of things, right? In, in changing the narrative and these spaces. And that's going to be hugely controversial because it will literally be ascribing a value to someone's life. And economics professors have been doing so for years. I mean, my, when I was in grad school, my economics professor said that black folks shouldn't have, or black men specifically, shouldn't have to pay into social security because we infrequently live long enough to collect on it. It was a bad bet. And he wasn't being racist. He was looking at the data. He was like, well, you know, if you start collecting social security at 65 and you're going to live to 68, I mean, you're leaving a lot in the tank for other people. It's like, well, that's super morbid but real, right? So when we talk about what is a just and appropriate compensation, are people going to be valuing the life of a poor kid the same way as a wealthy kid, right? And the level of investment that will be necessary for them to live an appropriate life, right? So you take the child support, for example, right? So if you and I uh, came from the same kind of, you know, household where, you know, as we talk about socioeconomic status, right? Let's say you live in a household where y'all are balling, right? Like y'all a million dollar people, right? And I'm $10,000 people, right? And say, all right, well, the state is going to say that you have to live in the way that you are accustomed to living. Well, your kid is going to get more money than my kid. And that's deeply problematic when what we should be talking about is making sure that the child gets what they need to be successful and involved in these spaces. And we're going to have to start to look through and think about those kind of things. And so as we talk about what is just compensation, it's going to have to really lead to equitable compensation and what that means from the state's investment in people, uh, in families, in mothers, in, in fathers in these spaces to say, well, hey, this is what it's going to cost. As we talk about eligibility for housing allotments in particular, Right. Like there are going to be a lot of levels that we've got to start to figure out. I think the high points are what are the benefits that the state afford to people after they have children mm -hmm. or not? And so we're talking about housing eligibility. Right. So if the state is saying, hey, you have to go through with a pregnancy instead of counting you as one, it's going to have to count you as two because it's now requiring you to be a two and not a one. And so that's going to have huge impl implications on how much housing we have available and how much money you can make, uh, childcare numbers, right? So if the state is saying you have to have a child, childcare should be covered. Childcare should be covered free. There's no, there's, there should be no if, ands, or buff, buts about that. Same thing about access to uh, medical care. All of that medical care for that child, once they're born and for you before they're born, is going to have to be covered. Like that is the first part of necessary compensation that the state is going to have to do. The part that I think is going to give people a lot more consternation is every day that you're not working, we should be paying you unemployment. And the question is going to be, is that unemployment that your employer pays? Is that unemployment the state pays? Every day that you're underemployed, 
that's going to be something that we should also be covering, right? So if you are a professor and you also travel and do the speaking circuit and do those other things, but you cannot do those now because of the decision the state made you do, we got to pay for that too, right? And so we see a um, some understanding for some of those kind of things and some of the economic development programs that, that states use when we talk about under underemployment rights. So it's like, hey, get back. You're a skilled electrician. Get back into the workforce. You got to get out and get going. So instead of you getting paid master electrician salary, you're making journeyman electrician salary. The state giving you a little bit of gap to get you back in the space. States going to have to do that with, uh, with folks who have become pregnant only because the state says you must stay pregnant. Right? We're going to have to cover those kind of things. And similarly, there are probably a whole host of other things that we haven't even begun to think about. And I think the most important piece is the gender pay gap, because we see having a child become a huge portion of it. And so from my estimation, the state is going to be on the hook for every bit of that gap that comes as a result of you having had to have a child. And so if your peers who didn't, made, you know, got a 10% bonus or 20% bonus, stays on the hook for that because we told you that you were going to make a decision that was different, right? And there are a lot of people who say, well, you, you can't control it. That's not predictable. Plenty of economists have predicted and they understand and see that that is the gap. We can see it. We know it exists. We got to fund it. Well, and what I think is interesting about this proposition is that equity is not the same number for everyone. Right. Um, And, you know, what it has me thinking about is, you know, proposals like Andrew Yang's and others who've talked about, you know, minimum income, Uh, because, you know, what has has come to the forefront for me as we have talked about reproductive rights and reproductive justice is, you know, is there a right to have a minimum standard of childhood? And if there is not, should there be right? Um, We right now do not have. And other countries do. Other countries have better minimum standards for health care. Other countries have better minimum standards for child care. Um, they have better minimum standards for like pre-kindergarten education for children. And, you know, you know, if we're going to ban abortion and start forcing people to bring children into the world in one of the worst systems in the world to have a child, um, is that also the time when we've got to just make up all these gaps and failures of how we raise American children. Um, And it is just telling to me that we can acknowledge that it is more expensive to raise a black boy. Um, Mm -hmm. It is more, the second most expensive is raising a black girl. Um, And it doesn't matter what your, your starting income level is simply protecting a black child in this world and raising a black child in this world is more expensive. Um, And whose fault is that? And why is that burden? If it is not the fault of the individual parents always on the individual parents. Yeah, I mean, imagine us starting to talk about a trans child, like a little black trans girl. That's going to be way more costly. It's going to be way more difficult. It's going to have way more issues. And we can't even figure out the first part. You layer in these other issues that are causing challenges for little kids who just want to live their best life. I mean, those are the kind of things that we are going to be on the hook for forever. And we should be right. Like these aren't things that we are like, oh, man, it's just now because abortion is a thing that we got to deal with. It's like, no, these are things we should be. We should have been talking about. We should have been working on that. We should be addressing either way. 
But if the state is going to interject itself into your household, into your bed, into your life in this, in such an abs- in such a very clear and life-changing moment, now's the time that we address it. Now's the time that we have to say, all right, this is what you wanted. You have to own this. You have to own this space and you have to own it. And we do have minimums, right? Foster care is supposed to be the minimum level of care that you are supposed to get. And our foster care system, I don't want to say it's trash because it has a number of people who love it and who love people and who are doing the best they can, but it's wildly underfunded. The investment that we make is unacceptable. It's a, it's not okay the way we treat the children that are discarded from life for a variety of reasons. And we've got to address that in these spaces all day, every day, because we're about to create a significant number of more children that do not have a home where someone loves them, where someone wanted them. And that's how they ended up. You know, that's how other people currently in the foster care system ended up in the system. And so it's like, all right, add a thousand or 2000 or 3000 or 10,000, you know, no one has a great number for these things. You know, I, I hear a lot of people and a lot of that data that says, well, this is going to impact black and brown communities way more uh, from the, a practical standpoint. Well, most of that is just because the data that we have about who seeks and who receives an abortion is from public institutions. And that is where black and brown people are disproportionately going to get care. But a number of these private clinics that are providing quiet care or the, you know, mail-in abortion spaces are not reporting in the same way. So we're going to see a huge shift in these spaces for folks because we know that disproportionately the number one reason that, that people are getting an abortion is because they cannot afford to have another child, right? It's not because they don't want to have a child. It's because having a child is already too costly. And so if the state is now about to say, all right, have this other kid, we've got to cover it because the same people who are pro-life, the same people who are trying to ban abortion, the same people who are doing those kind of things are cutting Medicaid, are trying to cut, cut, cut Medicare, are cutting the foster care system, are doing the things necessary to make sure that it's even harder to raise a child. It's even harder to get them the child care that they need. So we can't do both. You know, I'd like to transition a little bit and talk about um, what it is that you and the legislature are doing to protect the right to choose and, you know, what it is that constitute your constituents and other residents can do um, to help uh, protect abortion rights. Um, so, so what are y'all doing, you know, in the Michigan legislature um, to, to, and to protect the right to choose at this point? So Democrats have introduced a whole host of bills to support a woman's right to choose, to protect people who can become pregnant, ability to control their body and to maintain agency over those spaces and to do all of those kind of things. Unfortunately, the legislature is in Republican control. And so they have introduced a whole host of bills to do so. And Republican legislators are fighting the governor and the attorney general about every single one of these cases to make to try and get the 1931 law to be in the books. The biggest thing that anybody who wants to ensure that reproductive justice is a thing, that access to an abortion continues to be uh, available, is to support the ballot initiative. And so I know I I went out and got petitions to help and I'm going to go out and continue to do so and advocate for it. But the ballot initiative here in Michigan is really the best and only realistic opportunity Uh, short of the Senate and the House chambers changing 
that will allow real shift. And we know that because abortion has become such a highly politicized thing, right? There are no more pro-life Democrats and there are no more pro-choice Republicans. If you want to be a Republican, you got to hate abortion. If you want to be a Democrat, you have to believe that a woman has body agency, as opposed to us just saying, hey, you know what would be great is if people could choose what was best for their own lives in a manner that solely impacts them. Right. Like, and, you know, now more than ever, you see all these people who are like, well, you like choice when it comes to abortion, but you don't like choice when it comes to vaccines or masks. And it's like, I don't know how much my child, you know, having a child does not spread a global pandemic, right? Like, it, it, that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, these are the kind of false choices that you're starting to see from a political and a legislative discussion where people are trying to equate choice to um, selfishness and endangering other people. Having a child or not having a child is a deeply personal decision. And having an abortion is an even more deeply personal decision that is being legislated by people disproportionately who can never have a child, who would never have a person growing in them or a fetus growing in them or a, you know, life growing inside them at any state in any time, way, space or form. But that's the moment that we find ourselves in. And if people don't like it, then they need to vote and they need to be involved. They need to get invested in this space because people who do not like abortion, people who do not believe in uh, women maintaining agency over their bodies have been involved and invested for 70 years, right, to overturn this fundamental right, like no other right except for the right to vote has been so under attack uh, because of the empowerment that it provides people in space, right? Like that, that is what access to an abortion has been. It has been an empowering piece for people who could become pregnant because it gives you control over something that you never had control about in the past. I mean, Having a child has been the bludgeon that sexists have used, sexist and misogynists have used over women for a generation. They're like, well, you can't have women serving in the army. They might get pregnant on the front. It's like mm, they could also just not have sex or use birth control or do any of the other things. Right. Like you don't say to men, hey, guys, no sex because you could get pregnant and then you won't be able to do your job. No, that's not a thing. But for women. It very well could be where they could say, hey, I'm sorry, you know, we've now said no access to an abortion. And because of the state that you're in, we've banned uh, access to contraceptives. So, you know, just don't have sex and you won't get pregnant. But what if you get raped? Because there's no provision for rape or incest in Michigan's law. So you are an active duty soldier in the military. You come home for whatever reason and you get raped and then you get pushed out of the army or you get passed over or you miss your assignment because you're now pregnant, right? Like these are the kind of things that we're going to see in these spaces because one sexual assault is a very real and pervasive thing, particularly for women of color and trans women uh, or, or trans men, you know, in these spaces. It's like, well, you're just going to, you're not going to address that. Like people don't want to, people don't want to address that piece of what this means. Uh, when it's going to be deeply problematic and a deeply personal issue that we should provide people with care for. You know, you're making me realize we did not run through what is in the 1931 Michigan bill. 
Um, and what's interesting to me about the 1931 Michigan bill is, you know, it's a total abortion ban. It, is, it doesn't say abortion. It says uh, inducing a miscarriage, which is probably the more appropriate technical term, uh, my OBGYN friends tell me. But what is interesting about this Michigan law from 1931, there is absolutely no, ex- there's no rape exception. There's no incest exception. Um, and what it essentially does is criminalize it. It is, And it, it, it doesn't criminalize the person who has the abortion. It criminalizes the person who induces it and performs it. Um, and it is my guess as the law professor that the reason the hospital systems were so anxious to say immediately when Dobbs got overturned um, is because it's a criminalization of the person performing bill, which could also lead to liability. Um, and it is not the person who receives it, which could just have a chilling effect. The mere possibility that a doctor could go to jail will make a doctor not perform their procedure. Um, so it's important to point that out. Not a fetal person a bill, no exceptions, but it is a criminalization of the procedure kind of bill. Now, you know, just to close this out, uh, you opened with something that I didn't put in our agenda, but I would love to talk more about it. Um, one, how like, you know, the whole reason I am talking to you is because your wife found me, which love her for that um, and tell her I said hello. But also uh, the role of men in this this struggle. You know, men have been very, very active in banning abortions, uh, but they have not been so active in protecting the right to choose. So I would love for you to talk about you know, what you've done as a man to provide support and what you think other men could do uh, to be supportive of the movement. First thing you have to do is be present, right? Like be present when there are events, when there are opportunities, be there, support the women who are doing it, right? Like uh, for too long, people like to say behind every strong black man was a strong black woman. Well, go stand behind a strong black woman and say, hey, I'm here for it, right? Like uh, the day that uh, the Supreme Court you know, put out their their new guidance and overturned row. There was a rally in Palmer Park, which is a, a park up, up the street from me. And right as my friend Mally McMorrow, state senator, was about to talk, a black man starts basically shouting her down. And, you know, oh, you, y'all don't care about black. It's like, whoa, bro. Like I, you know, and she's a white woman. I went over and was like, hey, man, I'm also a state senator. Let's go have a conversation on the side. He's like, y'all, you just don't let me. Know. I was like, bruh, he's like, just let's talk because that's the thing. We have got to be in the space to allow you to do the things that only you can do and not to be in the front, but to be supportive in a way that is hard for men to do, right? Like no mansplaining, no man speak, just I'm here. However you need me, just I'm in, you know, and at that rally, the only two men that spoke were myself introducing Lieutenant Governor, who's also a black man as he spoke. But the Planned Parenthood rally, when they had went after the leaked opinion, I was the only man who spoke at the Capitol in those spaces, is being present and being open to being used in the way that makes sense to women and people who can become pregnant because this is your fight. It's important for me to stand with you and say, I bring all of my agency with me and to you. Thank you so much for that. And I think, you know, it is important. Legislatures are still mostly male. Um, And so it is important for men to write the bills, advance the bills that protect the right. 
But as you say, like, let women have the stage and speak when it's our turn to speak. No mansplaining. Um, I, I think one of the most disturbing things about this movement has been uh, the mansplaining of, of pregnancy and reproductive rights that has gone on throughout, um, which one points out our failures in health education, but also points out the patriarchy that, that still persists. Well, I would like to thank you for joining me today and thank you for breaking this down. Um, if any of you ever miss an episode of Getting Common, the rebroadcasts are played anywhere that podcasts can be found and also on the Voice America Network and on our YouTube channel. Feel free to email me. You can do so through the show page. And you can also find me on Twitter like um, Adam's wife did. I am at Carla C. Um, and you can find Adam on his website, um, Please support all of his initiatives if you are in Michigan and, and, and just be very, very thankful um, that you've got such a great representative um, in, in Michigan's legislature. Thank you again, Adam. See you. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.